Good customers make my day so much better. Bad customers really kind of like want to bang your head against a brick wall, but they're just starting to rear their ugly heads a lot more than they used to. I mean, back in the day at Ace, if somebody had a problem, they'd say something there and then. You wouldn't have to read about it on social media. Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking to chef and restaurateur Donovan Cook. Donovan has Rhine Restaurant in North Fitzroy. And I'm going to start by hopefully not embarrassing you, Donovan, but I've got your book in front of me with a foreword by Marco Pierre White. And I'm just going to read out a few of Marco's quotes. He calls you a gifted craftsman, one of the hardest working chefs he's ever come across. He says that you have a gritty determination to create incredible, sublime food. You're a master classicist and the foundation of your dishes frequently shows a passion for classic French cuisine. He also says that you can absorb immense pressure, consistently delivering a standard of excellence even on very many nights of very little sleep. Exhaustion is an essential part of the job. Um, and he, you know, he reckons you're an integral part to him getting three stars at Harvey before you moved on um, to the Hyde Park Hotel. So, Donovan... Welcome to Daddy Linen. There's a little bit of a rave for you to start off. <laughs> Thank you very much. Seems like a million years ago that. I bet it does. <laughs> I mean, what about that time in your career still seems relevant today or, you know, what have you brought with you on that long journey? Uh, I think what I was taught back in those days was, you know, respect for the product, respect for the people around you and the fact um when people come to a restaurant, they're spending money, so we have to respect them as well. You know, without them, we can't have restaurants. So what I learned from them was, you know, trying to produce excellence from Marco, and with the wise advice I took before I went to Marco from Michel Roux, it kind of stood me in good stead. I mean, when I worked for Marco, I was only 23, so I was a little bit hot-headed myself in them days, to be honest. Well, it was a different time, wasn't it? I think, you know, kitchen culture. I mean, give us a bit of an insight into what it was like in those kitchens. Uh, basically, <clears throat> we'd be closed on a Sunday. That was at Harvey's. So basically, Monday morning, you'd be heading on into work around seven in the morning. There'd be five of us in the kitchen and basically the food would be delivered at seven in the morning and we'd have to prep it for lunch. Um, so basically what my role was then, I, I started as a chef to party at Harvey's and then after two weeks he made me head chef because he sacked the head chef. So I got a little bit of a, a quick promotion to the top. But what it was it like in them days, I'd have to wait for the fish to come in, I'd have to fillet the fish, then I'd have to make the fish stock to make the fish sauces. And the same thing had apply for all the meat and that as well. Say for instance, the pig trotters come in, you burn the pig trotters out, you braise the pig trotters, you stuff the pig trotters, you roll the trotters, and then you're ready for lunch. So everything was done, every single service. If you sold some trotters at lunch, you'd have to pre-order, uh, you'd order some more, and you'd have to do them again in the afternoon. That's, yeah, that is, that's pretty amazing. I mean, you know, for people who might not know how special that is, how different, you know, do, do some kitchens operate today? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is back in them days, everybody... There was like a, a waiting list to get into the kitchen, you know what I mean? These, I, I got in, I was fortunate enough to get in, but if I was to go, there was about another 15 to 20 people ready to step into my shoes. So I had to try my best every single day, no matter how tired I was, because somebody else wanted my job. And what was it that kept you going? Like what, what motivated you to, to want to stay in that tough environment? 
Uh, I always, you know, I wasn't that good at school, but I found something that I was good at and I wanted to do the best I possibly could. And it was, you know, looking at my boss, Marco Pia White, who was only five years older than me, of two-star Michelin, it was like he was an inspiration to us all. You know, if he could do it from a working class upbringing like me, then why can't I do it? So I wanted to be like him in a nutshell. And, I mean, backtracking a little bit, you started at, or you worked previously to Harvey's at Waterside Inn with the Rue Brothers, yep. another, you know, absolutely legendary, game-changing, career-defining restaurant for so many chefs. What was that like? Um, you know, a lot of people say to me, was it like at the Waterside? Was it harder at Marco's? Was it harder at Marco's in some respects? But realistically, Mr. was probably the hardest taskmaster there ever was because he was all about perfection and... I got. I went there pretty cocky, thought it was a, uh, God's gift to everything at the time, and I said, I want to go on the meat. And he goes, all right, what we'll do is we'll put you on the butchery first. And I said, well, I don't want to do the butchery, I want to cook the meat. And he goes, well, you don't cook the meat here until you learn how to butcher it. So I learned how to do all my butchery skills, whole animals, game season, you name it. And again, I learned that there. And then the next, I wanted to go and cook fish. But before I could cook fish, I had to learn how to fillet the fish. So you was grounded there and we all had to we all had to do staff meal we all had to vacate the kitchen at a certain time nobody worked through and the, the kitchen was scrubbed three times a day the the stove was scrubbed with emery cloth and all the brass was brassoed every day every service and yeah it was like being in the army to be honest <laughs> <laughs> and, i mean I mean, let's fast forward to now. Well, tell us about Ryan. You know, what's the restaurant like? What have you had to, I guess, shrug off or let go from those periods? And, and what have you been able to carry through? Uh, I've always had the same passion for trying to produce excellence. You know, my attention to detail would be from the butchery to the sources. And not, I don't know, you tell me, you probably out a lot, but a lot more than me. Not, nobody actually makes sauces and that anymore. They just kind of, I don't know, do dressings and stuff. Where we, I try and keep that going. If I buy a, a chicken, I'll use everything of the chicken. Would it be the bones, the skin, the fat, uh, the breast, the leg, the wings, the neck? You name it. I, I use all the same thing on the whole of that ingredient on on the plate, and nothing goes to waste here. But the problem is at the moment, and I'm sure. A lot of people you've spoke to in the industry, it's trying to get staff, trying to get staff that want to be doing it and trying to get staff that can actually do what they say they can do on the resumes. That's the hardest thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, what do you put that down to? Is it, a, I mean, a, a different sort of training? I mean, restaurants just aren't set up where you can send someone over to the butchery section to start breaking down animals. Um, that's that's not as usual in restaurants. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I break out all the animals here myself. Would it be uh, ducks? Would it be chickens? Would it be whole fish? Would it be uh, marrons, langoustines, whatever? It's all, we all buy it as a whole piece and we break, break it down. But the, the thing is, is that people kind of are now focusing more on how much money they're going to get rather than what they can do. I mean, I've had people here come through apps as well as pastry chefs and can't make souffles, even though my recipes are, you know, set in stone for 20 years and all of a sudden there's a problem with the recipe, not the fact that they've uh, weighed out too much sugar and not enough egg whites and all of a sudden they can't whip the egg whites because they're eating on and then start, start demanding $50, $60 an hour. It's pretty challenging. I suppose one of the things about it, about those skills is 
you have to value them. Like you have to, I suppose people have to value them as chefs as part of, you know, a repertoire of skills that you build up over time. But customers also have to value the time that it goes into creating some of the dishes. And, you know, I'm looking at the Rhine menu now and there are some, some dishes that you can order or you have to order in advance. So, for example, slow-cooked pigeon or fillet of beef wellington and, you know, particularly those pig's trotters a la um, Pierre Kaufman and um, and a, pig, a pigeon dish. I mean, these are dishes that... Um, that take time, that take very specific skills um, and they have to be valued, you know, not only by the restaurant but also by, also by the diner in terms of what they're prepared to pay for them. I mean, how do you, um, how do you sort of balance out all those, those different considerations, you know, in, in the current climate? Yeah, well, the thing is that's why I don't, you know, back in the day when I had Estes Test and uh, Ondine, I used to have pigeon trotters on the menu. And I'd be charging 60 bucks for them back then. That's when the pigeons were costing me $9 each, regardless of the manpower and all the rest of it. Now a pigeon cost me 27 to $30 a piece. So the only reason I can use them is people that have dined in some of my previous restaurants or dined overseas, they know what it is. They know what they're letting themselves in for and they know what the, the bottom line's going to cost them because realistically, I'm not going to sling pigeon on the menu and not sell it and have... Uh, issues with uh, prices same with the pig's trotters I mean it's not so much the trotters that's the expensive item you're talking about morels and sweetbreads as well or at the moment I do truffle menus but again you can pre-order it but you can also come in here and tonight you can get a steak and chips for 50 bucks with a glass of wine you know I try and do everything for everything but the thing is the current climate I don't know if you've heard around town but the, the, some of the customers are really not very nice and there, I've had several letters recently of extortion demanding refurb, uh, reimbursement or they're going to give me one-star Google review. Yeah, I, I, I definitely want to talk about that, but I feel, um, and yeah, it's, yeah, we're definitely going to get into that. But I just want to just track back slightly and just mention SSS and Ondine. Let's let's do let's do the heritage and then let's talk about some of the tricky times we're in at the moment. But I I'd love you just to give us a little bit of um, insight into SSS, which I think um, was it 97, 98 that that opened and was there in South Melbourne for a few years and was a really seminal restaurant for a lot of chefs. I particularly remember Joseph Abu talking about you know being absolutely terrified to knock on the back door to, to look, you know, to ask for work. And, you know, I've heard that story from, from numerous chefs and that restaurant was followed up by Ondine. Can you just give us a little bit of a, you know, backstory to those two Melbourne restaurants? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, Estes Test, I was, what, 25 years of age at the time and um, I always wanted to open my own restaurant. Obviously, I'd done, what, three and a half years with Marco. I'd done a year and a half in France. I'd done three and a half years with... Mr. Roo, and it was time to do something. And the thing is, when I first arrived, I always remember I got a copy of the um, Sunday Age, and it says fine dining is dead. Nobody's doing fine dining anymore. It's all about sharing, and that's when Stephanie Alexander and Mietas had just closed. And I thought to myself, well, this is supposedly one of the food capitals of the world. It can't be dead. We just have to think about what we can do a little bit differently. So... We, we opened Des and basically I, I had the same kind of mentality as we did at Harvey's. I used to get the stuff every day, prep the stuff every day, cook it to order every day. If I had nine pigeon, I'd have nine pigeon of sauce. 
99 portions of sauce. If I had uh, 10 salmon, 10 portions of sauce, 10 garnish, you know? And that's the way it was. And used to get in in the morning, play la la very loud rock music and just bang out the food. And the thing is, the people that was in the kitchen in them days was, you, you know, you had Rita McCarley, there was Karen White, and then Joseph Arbood came along, Josh Emmett, Ben Russell, Danny Southern, Lalani Wolverton, Philippa Sibley. You know, it was like all these people are doing very well. And then when I opened on Dean, we had Scott Pickett in there as well. And we just cooked from the heart and changed the food to, you know, find out he wasn't dead at all. It was just not penguin suits anymore. And you can have like uh, Metallica playing in the background on a Saturday night with uh, <clears throat> people spending a bit of money on food and wine. Yeah, I, I yeah, it's really interesting. I definitely would, yeah, also agree that there were those transition restaurants that um, that gave Australia a new style of fine dining. And <laughs> I don't reckon I'd written that story that you saw in the Sunday Age, but I reckon over the course of my career, I have written about five stories speculating on the death of fine dining. So it's um, it is something that I mean, you know, in the end, it, it, we don't want it to die. Like, there's always going to be people who are, you know excited to to create beautiful dining experiences and to spend money on them but it, it does have to be refashioned and reframed as the as the times change for sure i mean like I, what i do here i i don't really call it fine dining i call it fine food in a casual industrial setting and you know what i mean it's the thing is is as much attention to detail on every single plate here as i was back in the s days it's just remodeled a little bit less i don't know but pompous it's a little bit more accessible I think but it's still the same amount of weight goes into every single plate. All right Donovan tell us about what's been happening recently um, with these people that have been making life uh, pretty difficult for you. Well, I think it's me and many others I mean um, people people now rather than saying to you to your face they have an issue with the food or they have an issue with that I have people now that um, come in for dinner uh, they'll eat, they'll leave, and then the day later they'll send me an email saying reimburse me or face the consequences. I had one table of eight. This was a day before the George Calambaris Cal- collaboration. They came in, eight of them. Only seven was eating, um, but they all shared anyway. And then the BYO to cake, and I charged them cakeage of $5, which is normal format in every restaurant in in Melbourne or even in Australia, and they said um, reimburse us $45 or face the consequences. And the consequences were eight one-star reviews every day for six weeks. So hang on a minute. They were, did they specifically object to the cakeage? Not on the night, no. Okay, but that's what their, their grounds for this, asking for a refund, they were asking for a refund of the cakeage. Yes. Wow. Okay, that is so weird um, because, yeah, as you say, it's pretty normal for restaurants to charge a fee if someone brings their own cake. You know, dessert is obviously something that a restaurant sells, so if customer brings their own, that's income that, you know, the restaurant doesn't receive. So it's a pretty nominal charge. Um, so, I mean, what did you do? So basically I said, well, you're not going to get your $45 back because you all let the cake off my cutlery and crockery and away you went. And they said, well, we had one glass of sparkling mineral water. We didn't order that and we're not paying for that either. So give us the $5 back. So I just said, like, listen, I'm not interested. 
well, that was it. So when it started, then it, it was like eight re- eight reviews on Google. They just changed the the name slightly, but it was the same copy paste review, and it was like saying how much of a rip off this place is. Don't go there. Don't trust Donovan Cook. He can't cook. La 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 la. And this went on for a week. I got in touch with my lawyer, and the lawyer said, "Well, I can write a letter, but there's not a lot we can do. You got to go to Google." So I went to Google. Google said they can't really take, do anything about it. Then I rang the police. The police said they can't do anything about it, even though it's defamation of character. So this went on every day for three or six weeks. So I went from 4.9 stars in Google to 3.2. And, I mean, how much, how important <laughs> is that Google ranking? Do you know what? For me, I don't really care. The problem is people that come into the, into the, the city from other cities or overseas look at that as a tool to find somewhere to eat yeah and if all it is is negativity then every review is negative it, it doesn't paint a very good picture you know what i mean and then what other people do they read it and i had a, pe- uh, a couple of tables coming last week one ordered a margarita drank it and then the next day sent me an email back saying it was $28 I don't I don't want to pay $28 I wanted the cheaper version so give me the $28 back or I will give you one star review. And somebody else, same day, I had the duck, the portion size of the duck wasn't big enough, give me $49 back or face the consequences. And this is like an ongoing saga, at least two a week I get. Oh, my goodness. And have you, I mean, is this reflected in conversations that you've had with other restaurateurs? Yes, yes. What is wrong with people? I had had somebody, he had a table of 20 students coming to his restaurant and hospitality students, I might add, and they said reimburse us or we'll give you 21-star reviews. And that was to reimburse for the whole meal? Yeah, for the whole 21 of them, yeah. And, I mean, is it is it the new, like, you know, cut and run? Like, what's... <laughs> this, this is it. I mean, this is what it's come... This has gone down to, you know, as well as I do at the moment. It's tough for everybody, okay? We're all, we're all hanging in there. We're all doing our best. We're trying to, you know, meet the customers halfway. And we do good deals and all the rest of it. But you, it's just soul-destroying. When you, you have to fight back to these kind of people, and then they're threatening you. But yet they've eaten the food, <laughs> and then they want, they want the money reimbursed in a week or two weeks later. Yeah, I just find it just feels quite soul destroying honestly because you've got to put your heart and soul into the food like as you've you know so clearly told us you know there's you know there's so much detail on every plate so much care and thought goes into it and then to feel that you know the person that you're creating this experience for isn't fronting up to their side of the bargain they're not eating in good faith is um really dispiriting well the thing is is you know i i spoke to one of my regular customers who's one of his friends is a QC and basically he said to me, moving forward now, just any letters you get, you just send them direct to me and I'll do it pro bono because it isn't right. This sort of stuff isn't right. All, all industries in hospitality were affected during COVID and everybody's trying to claw their way back out of it now. And you just think you're going to get your head above water and then there's all these people for what? $40? Come on, you know, is it worth, is it worth the hassle for $40 to actually continue to try and <laughs> blackmail me to get that money back. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a pretty dumb hobby to be sitting there um, <laughs> Google reviewing people. Yeah. I always think when you enter a restaurant, you want to enjoy the food and the company and you don't really, you know, go there to think about, right, how can we get away we're not paying? 
Yeah. I mean, I've been in touch recently with an um, Indian restaurateur and I feel like, yeah, she, I feel like she wouldn't mind me saying her name, but I, I won't just in case. But she's, um, she's got an artwork in her restaurant that some people in the Hindu community, she's, she's also Hindu, have, have objected to. They think it's sacrilegious. And she's been piled on from all around the world, from, um, from, you know, different Hindu communities or different Hindu people or people, you know, part of this pile on. Um, so it's not only the, it's, it's the one star reviews. Um, it's also been phone calls. It's also, it's also been threats. Um, and I mean, she has been able to have most of the international reviews removed by Google because I guess they can easily establish that this isn't actually a genuine customer. But I mean, has Google, what, what have, what have your overtures to Google shown you? Well, they, they, they took some down, but they said they can't not prove they never came here. So I said, well, the IP address is almost the same. And it's not so much the IP address, it's the actual words in the review. They're identical. You know what I mean? The words in the review are identical. Every day was exactly the same. They didn't even try and copy, paste, and change a little bit. It was all identical. So they took some, I think it took half a dozen down. But, yeah, you just have to go scroll through it, and they're still there. So, yeah. And they said they can't do anything. It's, you know... It's their word against our kind of thing. And it's like even the police. I said, well, I know where these people reside at. If I went round to their house and actually confronted them, you'd do something to me, wouldn't you? And he goes, yeah, we'd have to arrest you for, you know. I said, but it's all right to try and badmouth me and my reputation, which I've been in the industry for 26 years, and it's no problem for them trying to badmouth me. But for me to go over there and say, stop doing it, there'd be a problem to me, wouldn't they? And basically, yeah, it'd be me who would be, me would be in trouble. Um, Donovan, let's shift gears. I'd love to chat about the collaborations that you're doing over the next little while. Um, tell us, tell us what they are and, and what's your reasoning for, for, um, yeah, for collaborating with other restaurants. Um, do you know, um, I've been in the game, what, the 40, 39 years this year and I got given a break by people to do stuff and learn other stuff. So I thought it'd be good to do, um, collaboration with restaurants you wouldn't really associate with Donovan Cook, you understand what I mean? Uh, like Pippi's a small little kiosk there in Albert Park. People probably wouldn't associate doing something together with them. Maybe me and George or me and Raymond, yeah, because we worked together 20 years ago, but somebody I don't really know and they don't really know me. So I'd be also trying to introduce a different kind of clientele to what I have at the moment and also giving some of these young up-and-comers a little go as well, you know, and having a look and doing some interesting things together. Yeah, so Pippi's Kiosk, is, are they coming to Ryan? Yeah, they're coming to Ryan. Interesting. And, I mean, uh, have you met up with them yet? I mean, what kinds of things do you feel like you'll be able to share with them? Because especially, you know, they're a seafood-focused and I know you've had such a long time working with seafood. Yeah, it's a seafood focus. It's also to see, like, you know, these are young lads. I mean, I'm 50-something now, yeah, 54 now. So they've got young ideas like I used to have when I was younger. So I could actually just learn something from them as well as they could learn something from me, maybe. So it's, you know, sharing a knowledge and different thing. You know, we're not doing, like, wine matches so, so, uh, per se. We're doing drink matches, and they, they're doing three fish dishes. I'm doing, like, uh, two meat dishes and a dessert. So it'd be, it'd be interesting. I'm doing another one with um, Lee Ho Fuck with Victor, so that'd be interesting, doing a bit of a, a Western and Eastern kind of collaboration. So that'd be interesting as well. 
Mm, that's really great. I mean, overall, would you say it's obviously been such a tough time and, you know, the hard times continue. Would you say you feel like overall energised and inspired or is it just um, a daily struggle? Uh, I'm always energised and inspired. As I said, the thing is, is good customers make my day so much better. Bad customers really kind of like want to bang your head against a brick wall. And there's only one or two or three. It's not like it's, a, it's not like it all the time, but they're just starting to rear their ugly heads a lot more than they used to. I mean, back in the day at S, if somebody had a problem, they'd say something there and then. You wouldn't have to read about it on social media. I mean, there's enough social media going out at the moment. It's a lot easier to write something bad about you on social media than it is to tell it to your face, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so... If you ever see if you ever see Joseph Abood, ask him if he never he'll never forget to, to check the oven. I can tell you that much. One thing you learn at Esther. <laughs> what happened with Joseph in the oven? Uh, he got in at six o'clock in the morning to do a staff mail, which was uh, Bray's um, veal shanks, uh, saffron gnocchi, broad beans, sage, white wine sauce, and crispy pancetta, which is a lot to do for a staff mail. And he was all proud of it. And then he went to open the door at two o'clock, ready to eat. And he hadn't turned the oven on. <gasps> So, oh, that's terrible. What did you did you go and get burgers? Uh, yeah, we 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 rustled some. Let's let's just say it was a little bit intense for a while there until he figured it out. But yeah, he never <laughs> never ever forgot again. I can tell you that he never forget the oven. Oh, Donovan, I cannot think of a better place to leave it. That is a beautiful anecdote. Thank you so much for yeah sharing um, sharing with us today on Dirty Linen. It's great to hear stories from you know back in the day, but also to hear about how things are going for you now. Um, thanks so much for being on Dirty Linen. Thank you very much. This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is